Hey, Jared Dubin here. This is the audio from Tuesday's chat on the Halftime app with Sean Hyken from Bleacher Report. We talked a bunch about the Warriors, the Suns, the Kemba Walker situation with the Knicks, Michael Porter Jr.'s back injury and what's going to happen with the Nuggets, and then took some questions toward the end from people listening to the chat about the Western Conference playoffs, uh, the Timberwolves, the Blazers, the Lakers, whole bunch of other teams fighting for the, you know, four to 12 spots in the conference. Enjoy. Looks like we can get going. Uh, Sean, right. thanks, thanks again for doing this, man. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, let's start with uh, these games tonight because we got Knicks-Nets and then, you know, most importantly, Suns-Warriors where the, the Suns are on a 16-damn game winning streak right now and they somehow still don't have a better record than the Warriors because the Warriors are freaking 18-2. and two. Which makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, it does make sense if you watch them play, but eighteen and two, seventeen and three—it's pretty incredible. Uh, what, what have you seen from whichever team you want to start with that's most impressive to you? And then we'll go back and forth and talk about the other one. Well, I've really enjoyed. Hold on, there's some Woj thing now about. Uh, okay, there's okay. Woj just dropped something about the need for a booster shot. Whatever, I just got that. Uh, but anyway, so the Sun. The, the the Suns have been you know they start off the season what one and three yeah and you start to think well they maybe you know it's not as bad as like the bubble where there was like barely an off season but you you know you saw you know them you know go to the finals and maybe they're gonna be you know suffering a little bit from having a short off season especially because Devin Booker then went right to uh, Tokyo afterwards and so you're thinking you know they start off one and three but then they go on the 16 game winning streak and it's like everything is just kind of clicking for them Chris Paul has been great Mikel Bridges awesome DeAndre and you know miss a couple of games but he's kind of back to doing what he was doing in the playoffs the defense has been great uh I don't know it just it feels like the Suns and I feel like they were sort of I think they're kind of feeling disrespected a little bit in the way that like I think a lot of people were maybe saying before the season like oh they they only got to the finals because the lakers had a bunch of injuries or you know whoever else they played in the or you know like they beat the clippers without Kawhi in the conference finals or or whatever and now i think they they kind of have a motivation this year to kind of prove oh no they're actually legit and so far now that they've got everybody healthy that's kind of looking you know javel's been pretty good as a backup center that was a good pickup for them i i, I just i just like this suns team i mean i I think the Warriors are better, and especially like once they get Clay back, they might even get to a different level. But the Suns have really impressed. Yeah, I'd like to go back to you know that one and three start. I mean, one of the games was against Denver before guys started getting hurt left and right. right. Obviously, they didn't have Murray, but that's still a really good team. And they got Jokic. Like that's not that bad of a loss. One of the, of the three losses was at Portland on the second night of a back-to-back after they beat the Lakers the night before. Like, the only bad loss in there was Sacramento, and that was, you know, a close game. Like, generally, you're going to lose half your close games. Obviously, that's not been the case 
since then, they've won every single close game that they've played since, not that there have been all that many of them. I think they've only had like three, four games decided by five points or fewer. And having Chris Paul on your team is basically the best way to be really good in clutch time, just because historically his teams are ridiculously efficient on offense, even in the clutch, because, you know, they run offense instead of like giving the ball to a certain player. Um, What a concept I know, but that's just, they've been kind of crushing teams for the most part. Like I said, there are a few close wins thrown in here and there, but I mean, Booker is just absolutely on fire lately. I wrote about this this morning very briefly in like my Substack. Um, in a year where three point shooting is down across the league, Booker is finally shooting at like the expectation that people generally have for him. Like he's got a reputation as an elite shooter, and like the way he can go off in certain games sort of justifies it. And you know he had the seventy point game, and like he's ridiculously good shooter from mid range, and his jumper looks beautiful, but Coming into this year, he had only been like a 35% shooter from three for his career. This year, he's 41% on six attempts a game. And like, I noticed a few things in the second spectrum data. Uh, first of all, his, his quantified shot quality, like the expected effective field goal percentage, is up more than two points this year from his career high. So that is obvious. Like, he's getting better shots. And those shots are more open, an average of 6.2 feet between him and the closest defender. This year, and then the most interesting thing to me was he's shooting with less arc, 43.9 degrees on his shot, down from 45.6 last year. I don't know if that's the reason, but it's super interesting to me, and I'm going to take a look at the video to see if I can spot that in his jumpers. That's interesting, and you know, as far as his kind of the, his perception and all of that stuff, one of the I think one of the hottest takes that I've had over the last few years is that that 70-point game was, like, the worst thing that could have happened to Devin Booker's career. Because that, I mean, that game was a joke. Like, they got blown out by the Celtics in that game. And, like, they like team, the teammates were fouling the other team just to get in the ball back to get him to 70. And that kind of, like, you know, furthered this reputation that he had around the league as, like, oh, he's just, like, another guy who, like, puts up big numbers on a bad team. He's not a winning player. And I think that 70-point game and just how much of a farce that was kind of further that reputation and we didn't start to see it until you know they go eight and oh in the bubble and then they have the season that they had last year where you know they are the second seed in the west and then they go to the finals and he's great in the playoffs and now suddenly it's oh you know now that the games matter he's still doing that he's you know he's still you know putting up big numbers and he's still you know he's become you know more of a winning player i think in a lot of people's eyes and you know now now like you said the shots are kind of like the shooting percentages and the efficiency and stuff is kind of catching up to what the reputation was now. Yeah, I mean, I didn't particularly care about the 70-point game either way. Like, I wasn't like, this makes him a superstar, and I wasn't like, this makes him an empty stack guy. But I was relatively lower on Booker for a few years there because basically I was like, I feel like he should be a better passer. Like, he has good vision. He can make some passes that he's not making. And then I was like, he just doesn't try at all on defense. And I feel really badly about having been lower on him than I should have been at that point. Like, I should have just realized the team is hot garbage. He has to do everything on offense. The passes he's not making are passes to guys who aren't going to make shots. And, like, he has to carry such a big load offensively that it makes sense that he's not doing as much on defense. Like, 
I'm sort of frustrated with myself for thinking that way three, four years ago when I would probably wouldn't think that way of him if he was doing the same things now, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. And then, you, you know, you over time, you know, you get the guy better teammates. You know, you get him Chris Paul. Now he doesn't have to have that entire playmaking responsibility. And Chris Paul could also probably show him some things about, you know, th- these are some passes to make. These are some reads to make. And, you know, you, you get – you know, guys like, you know, Chris Paul and, you know, Mikel Bridges, who they drafted a, a, a few years ago. And now suddenly he doesn't, you know, he can, you know, pick his spots more in terms of, you know, putting the effort in on the defensive end, which I think he's actually gotten a lot better at over the last couple of years to where it's not a complete liability anymore. And I mean, like you said, it's almost like having better players makes you better because you have to do less. Yeah. And just like the, he used to be like the only shooting threat for the most part on the team too. And now, now they get a having, ton of shooters. yeah, like not just Chris, but Bridges, Jay Crowder, Cam Johnson, Landry Shamit, like even Aiton can step out to, you know, 18, 20 feet, and take mm-hmm. the occasional three. When Aiton was out, Frank Kaminsky was playing, and obviously he's a, a floor spacer. Uh, William, we'll, we'll get to you in a little bit as soon as we uh, finish talking about the, the, the Suns and Warriors here, and then we'll circle back around to some questions. Um, uh, what was I talking about? How many shooting, shooting around Booker? Yeah, like that just allows him more room to get to his spots on the floor that he really likes. And when you know he takes smaller defenders into the post on occasion, that works out well for him too. Like everything coming together has made him more than what he was, and he was more than like what he was was probably more than what I thought it was at the time too. So it's like sort of the best of both worlds there. Um, on Bridges, man, I just love that dude. Like the way that they can rotate through him, Crowder, and Johnson at like, as like big wings that all of them can play together. And it doesn't really matter. What, what, I mean, it does matter because some of them are better at things than others. But you can put any combination of those three guys on the court together and it just works. Like that's the kind of thing that you need. Like to me, that's the, the, what makes – a difference between you know good teams and teams that are like real contenders you need multiple big wing types that can do a little bit of everything even if they're not your best player well that was the book on bridges right like from the you know when he came out of villanova that was kind of the book on him was that or the scouting report on him at least based on the stuff i read was this is going to be like from day one the ideal nba role player because he doesn't need the ball but he can hit shots and he's a great defender and he can guard multiple positions and he's going to make an impact from day one. That basically was what happened. And he's just gotten, you know, ever, you know, now that the Suns are, it's kind of interesting. Like you could see the talent and you could see, you know, the impact that he had early on in his career when the Suns were still bad, but he's the kind of guy where what he does is more valuable on good teams than it is on bad teams. And so now that the Suns are actually good, you're seeing like, this is exactly the kind of guy that every contender needs to have. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to talk too much about it, but it's uh, very similar to me uh, in obviously different ways, but to Bruce Brown, where it's just a guy who's way better and way more impactful. Whoa, when he's you, on you're, team. you brought up Bruce Brown. That's wild. I didn't even, I didn't even expect that. <laughs> yeah, nobody could have ever predicted me bringing up Bruce Brown. Um, let, let's go to the Warriors now. Um, yeah. Steph is, I mean, I don't even have words for it. I haven't had words for it for a long time, but just to keep doing this again year after year and getting better year after year, like at this point, I think he's on pace to break his own 
threes record by like 50 threes or something like that. Um, he's already the only person, obviously, but he like he's taking 13 threes a game. 13! And he's not even and he's still not even shooting as well as he did last season. That's the crazy part. Well, at least well, I think the difference there is on twos. He's shooting basically the same percentage uh on threes. Somehow he is uh not leading the league in three-pointers made per game, five and a half, but he is leading the league in three-pointers made overall, 105. Um not sure who's making more than five and a half per game at the moment. That seems crazy to me. Uh, yeah, just without without uh, knowing who it is, God, I mean, I don't even know who I would guess. Oh no, he is five and a half, uh, one and a half so more than the next closest guy. Not he's sure why uh, Basketball Reference doesn't give him the the highlight for the per game. That seems Who's the strange. next closest guy. Uh, Buddy Heald at four per. Yeah, game. that sounds about right. Yeah, and then a bunch of guys at three point two. But anyway, yeah. the dude is outrageous. Like the chemistry. And the mind meld that him and Draymond have is even more outrageous. And then just the play that they're getting from guys like Jordan Poole and Bielitsa. Bielitsa, Kavan Looney, like Wiggins on defense, especially. Like, man, it's fun to watch these guys again. I feel like the effort has been there more with Steph on the defensive end this year than it has been previously also like he's still not like a vendor but it used to be that you know he, he was just that you, you had to hide him on whoever now I, I feel like you you know you, the effort you can look at and say okay he's at least like doing more on that end here I feel like than he has been previous years yeah I mean look like last year it was obviously pretty different he's still it's not like he was you know doing nothing on defense right last year um but I, I do think he's probably gotten better over the last few years and I think that connects to something that Michael put in the chat He's gotten stronger. Like, do you think that Steph hitting the weight room and gaining strength has contributed to being able to shoot so many threes and from so deep? Um, was was the question that Michael had in there? Probably. That's interesting. Like, I think that whatever work he did to get his ankles healthy, which I think Pablo Torre wrote a story about that a bunch of years back now, and that obviously yeah. helped a lot. And I would imagine getting you know getting stronger helps you shoot from deeper like it's not like his release is more effortful on like these 30 footers than when he takes them from right on the line or even when he takes them from the free throw line but i, I think that the the added strength has especially helped him on defense you can't like obviously there are still guys that are going to overpower him and if you know you want to run like you know the the Cavs did in that final series like a LeBron and Steph's guy pick and roll every trip down the court and somebody like LeBron wants to try to body him like yeah that's he's still not going to be able to to hold up too much against that but it's not like a ton of point guards are making him you know like making him a mouse in the house at this point right you know and you know Dave says in the chat let's not forget he's 33 years old uh I you know, I I brushed at the implication that 33 is old because I'm, <laughs> I'm 34. Uh, I'm like 10 months or so older than Steph, so I take I take umbrage with that. But it is ridiculous that he's doing what he's doing at 33. Um, and Steph is also a guy that like 
he's going to be able to, you know, it's like, like Ray Allen was like almost 40 by the time he was done and he was still a really good shooter. Like guys, guys like that are going to, are going to be able to age well, especially like, I feels like obviously Steph had the ankle stuff early on in his career, but it seems like that stuff is behind him for the most part. And he's a smart player that I think as he gets into his late thirties, he maybe at some point in Steph's career, he's going to become just a spot up shooter. And he'll be able to do that at an elite level for five. He could, I could easily see him playing into his forties and still being like highly effective if he wanted to. Yeah, I mean, he could just, like, be Dell later in his career and yeah. just be, like, the best standstill shooter in the league. He won't have Draymond, probably, to get him those shots anymore. I can't imagine Draymond playing into Steph's 40s. And it's right. also, like, you know, we're talking about Steph's age, and this is a good point by Baller Science in the chat, like, a biological age and physiological age. He also just, like, he's one of those guys that always seems young. You know, some of it is, like, the baby face. Some of it is that he just runs around like crazy, literally never stops moving on the Uh court. And, like, he's got, I guess, a young game, if that makes sense. And, obviously, he could age into more of a, you know, an older shooter's game as we get deeper into his career. But, I mean, what he's doing at this point is just absurd. I I do feel like we have to talk about other guys other than Steph. Like like I said, I've, I've been really impressed with Wiggins on defense. He's shooting it pretty well from three, 37 and a half percent on five attempts per game. Like that's not something we necessarily expected to see from Wiggins. Damian Lee shooting well, Gary Payton coming off the bench is like, if if you go anywhere near the mitten, and I know he doesn't like the nickname, but you don't get to choose your own nickname. uh, If you go anywhere near that dude on defense, you're going to turn the ball over. It's outrageous. And uh, Toscano Anderson back to playing more, Recently, he's been pretty good over these last few games. Poole isn't even really shooting it well yet. Like, it's just, it's a good team. It's a deep team. Something I wrote about uh, at the start of free agency, they just have way more of those big wing types this year than they did last year. Last year was basically Wiggins and Toscano Anderson, and that's it. They got Wiggins, Toscano Anderson, Damian Lee, who what, what didn't play all that much last year. Otto Porter, Kaminga plays a few minutes a game. Like, it's just way more options, and it makes the rotation that much deeper. And they're supposed to get Clay back at some point soon here, right? Yeah, I mean, like I'm not sure how soon. Now, so I would think by Chris we might see him back. I'm really interested to see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, look, I if if Clay could be even 80% of what he was, that would be an amazing result after a torn ACL and a torn Achilles. Like, show me the list of guys that have missed two full seasons and come back and been anything resembling what they were before, like, I'll wait. Um, And the list of guys to successfully come back from an Achilles is basically KD and Rudy Gay, and that's it. Um, But if anyone could do it, it's a guy... Someone says Michael Jordan. He did not miss two seasons due to injury. He missed two seasons. He had the broken foot, right, that early on in his career. Right. But that, like, two two full seasons back-to-back due to injury... It's not something that really happens. It's just. I mean, if you want to count like Joel and at the beginning of his career when he didn't even play until technically year three because he had the broken foot for the first two years, if you want to count that. That's a good point. Um, but it was also the same injury. Like it was not. Right. He su- It's not like he suffered an injury, was on his way to coming back, getting ready to co- like Clay was going to probably start the season last year, and then he tore his Achilles. Like. Man, you know? Um, the thing with Clay, though, is that he's also not a guy who's super, super reliant on 
athleticism where you know for well, a lot for a lot of these guys who you know, tear their ACL or tear their Achilles like you know somebody like Derek Rose who was never the same guy after he had the ACL or you know DeMarcus Cousins who was never the I mean DeMarcus Cousins is a lot bigger guy physically than uh than Clay is so that you know that maybe contributed to it also but you know even like a guy like Wesley Matthews who was never really the same after the Achilles like Clay is just kind of a standstill shooter I mean I think I think where we might see the impact be diminished is on the defensive end if he can't move as well. But as far as the offense goes, I fully expect him to be able to still like run around and spot up in the corner and be and you know hit open threes. I don't think that's ever going to go away from him. Yeah, look, um, I would never bet against Clay making shots. <laughs> that dude will make shots like as long as he wants to. Same same way as Steph will most likely. The issue to me is like you said, defense, and that's like being the level of defender that he has been throughout his career is what has made clay clay. Like it, it's the, di- that's a difference between clay and like JJ Redick is that clay was also like a very, very good multi-positional defender that could defend one to three switch one to three. So that's, that's a big thing not being able to defend at the same level. Like it's makes him a significantly different player. And then it's moving without the ball, which is a big thing for him too. He's still obviously going to be, I would think like a really valuable player even if it's just as like a guy spacing the floor and making shots. But I do think that it may, it does make him a much different player. And I'm interested to see how big the effect is. Like I said, if he can get back to 80% of the guy he was, first of all, that's still a damn good player. And second of all, that's pretty incredible considering the amount of time that he's going to miss. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I think what's crazy is that they're so good without him. Like they've been, they've been the best team in the league without yeah. him. So whatever, and it's not even like a question of, oh, you know, I mean, I, I, I can understand like there, there are going to be some situations where you think just on paper, oh, this team is so good. And now you add this guy back and then it maybe doesn't work out as well because, you know, it disrupts the chemistry. But these guys have all been together for so long in terms of, you know, Steph, Clay, Draymond, and now Andre is back in the mix. Like these guys all know each other so well. They've had the same coach this whole time. Like. I am not worried at all about like them being able to fit him back in. And honestly with the Warriors, and it's kind of the same thing as like what I've been saying about the Iguodala signing. He hasn't really done much on the court in the regular season, but as long as you have clay back fully acclimated by the playoffs, that's when this whole thing, that's when it matters. Like I'm not really worried about the Warriors like regular season record, even if they, if they're the one seed or the two seed, like a Phoenix catches them and, they aren't the one seed. Like, I don't really care about that very much. But if they've got all these guys kind of acclimated and back healthy and knowing their roles and stuff by the playoffs, then I don't know how many teams there are in the league that are going to be able to beat them in a seven-game series. Yeah, if you get to 18-2, and two, I think you're well beyond the point of me being worried about anything regarding your team other than injuries right. derailing things at some point. The interesting thing, I think, to watch for with Clay is when he's back to – something resembling full strength and getting his regular minutes. I'm curious to see how Kerr staggers things because for years, years and years, Steph and Draymond were fully attached in the rotation. They would both play basically the entire first and third quarter, sit the first six minutes of the second and fourth quarter and come in for the last six minutes of each half. They've changed that this year. Steph has been coming out at the six minute mark, coming back in a few minutes later, Draymond playing like the first nine or or 10 minutes of the first quarter, then taking his rest. And I'm curious to see how clay works in to that stagger because it's, it's going to be like 
Does that mean there's more like Steph and Clay with no Draymond time, more Clay and Draymond with no Steph time? It's just something to keep an eye on because it's not something we had seen previously. Because obviously Clay hasn't been back for two, uh, you know, two plus full years at this point, and because Steph and Draymond were attached in the rotation for so long, and guys are like very much creatures of habit. So I'm really interested to see how those combinations work out from now on. But the other, and the, the the nice thing about their situation is that you start the year out 18. You've already banked so many wins now that if it takes them some time to figure out these rotations and they lose a few games because they're kind of tinkering with stuff, they're already off to a big head start as far as their record goes and how many wins they have. That that's not even really. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not worried about it hurting them at all. I'm just interested to see because they did one thing one way for so long how it's going to change. Like I'm just like, I wrote a big story last year about basically the way teams treat their stars in their rotations, whether they're attaching or staggering, or if they have multiple stars, they're doing like, so the, the jazz, they match Conley and Gobert and stagger them with Mitchell and the bucks stagger all three of Giannis Middleton and drew. So they, ideally always have at least one of them on the court, but they do it differently than the Jazz do where it's two guys matched and then stagger with one. Like so the the Warriors do for years they matched Steph and Draymond and then when KD was there they mostly matched KD and Clay and that was sort of how they did it. Um so I, I just want to see basically what's different. Um so that obviously that game is tonight for people listening tomorrow. Uh hopefully it was awesome. Um, but let's let's talk about a few more things. Uh, I think we got to go to Kemba, who is yeah. now out of the Knicks rotation, although maybe not out of the Knicks rotation tonight because, like, 47 Knicks are questionable for this game, including Derrick Rose, um, all three centers also questionable, and R.J. Barrett questionable. Um, I'm curious your thoughts. Uh, Kemba, the, to answer the That Guy No 101's question, what happened with Kemba, Thibodeau basically said that Kemba is out of the rotation at this point. Alec Burks is going to start at the point. Rose and Quickly are going to come off the bench together. He mentioned something about sort of tightening the rotation, maybe just nine guys. So you may or may not see Quentin Grimes take the Burks role off the bench. Uh, I doubt you'll see Deuce McBride because one of the things Tib said about why he's not going to play Kemba off the bench is it would be pretty hard to play three small guards in Kemba, Rose, and Quickly, and McBride is the smallest probably of all of them, so I doubt he's going to be a guy that comes into the rotation. But what what do you think about the move from Tibbs? Like, do you think that they're putting the right guy in, in Burks into the starting lineup? Like, would you just start Rose? What What's your overall thoughts on that situation now played out? Well, I like Rose staying coming off the bench. I like that. I like him in that spot. I think he's kind of settled into that role nicely with the Knicks a couple of years that he's been there. I So I, I agree with kind of not messing with that and just kind of keeping him in that role. I don't know. The whole thing is just – it just bums me out with Kemba because you kind of hoped that, you know, once you got past, you know, the expectations of him having that big contract that he had in Boston and having to be an all-star, like that hopefully, you know, he'd be able to find some kind of – you know, role for himself in New York and especially with him being from like, you just, it's just some, it's just a huge bummer kind of what's happened. Cause he hasn't even like, he hasn't been great necessarily, but I haven't felt like he's from what I've watched of him. And you've obviously watched the Knicks run a night to night basis a lot more than I have, but 
I haven't felt like he's been absolutely terrible to the point where he shouldn't be playing anywhere. Yeah, um, I think it's tough. Like, uh, the starters as a whole has been the worst lineup and the most used lineup in the league so far. They're getting killed, like, 15 points per 100 possessions, and they've played, like, over 500 minutes, the most used five-man lineup in the NBA, and it's just not been working. So there, there had to be a change at some point. There's only, like, five lineups that have been that bad over at least 500 minutes in the last, like, 25 years. Um, and, and one of them was the Knicks' 2004 starters with, like, Marbury, Jamal Crawford, Eddie Curry, Zach Randolph, and Trevor Ariza. Like, that's the, the level of bad that we're talking about in terms of a five-man lineup. And I think that Kemba is not necessarily a scapegoat, but also I think, like, I don't know if he's necessarily the guy I would have removed and – or removed him from the rotation, but also he is the only one of the five starters who is not either a center or on like a long-term deal that they have a significant investment in. So like they weren't going to take the center out of the starting lineup because Tibbs is not going small. Maybe he would swap in Noel for Robinson, but that doesn't fundamentally change really anything about the lineup. But it's not like the Noel and that group has been playing well. Um, RJ, obviously they have a significant investment in Randall. They just gave a big extension and Fournier, they just gave a four year deal. And you know, the, the four season is not guaranteed, but they're paying him a whole bunch of money. Kemper's under contract for two years and 19 million. They don't have much investment in him. They, you know, they were pretty open about this being like a low cost flyer. and trying to get their point guard situation solved. And it's not necessarily working all that great so far. Um, Kemba's also the guy who's probably out of the guys that they could take out of the rotation, because as you mentioned, you know, a guy like Julius Randle, they, you know, that that's just never going to happen or, or RJ Barrett, but out of the guys that they theoretically could take out of the rotation, Kemba's probably the least likely to complain and make it into a whole thing because he's such a pro. Yeah. I mean, so I that could be part of it also. Burks for Fournier instead, it would ch- like change a little bit in terms of defense and versatility and size, which is some of the things that Tibbs said he wanted to make the change for getting Burks in there for Kemba, but it would allow the the structure of the two units to mostly stay the same. It would get like a little bit more ball handling in the starting lineup. And like I said, a little bit more size and versatility on defense, but Fournier could sort of play a Burks style role with the bench unit. Um, But obviously they're not going in that direction. The thing that everybody mostly wants to see is quickly starting and, you know, I, I don't know why you wouldn't just go to that. Like, to me, it's been pretty clear that he's been most effective in that role. Like, he's been at his most effective when he's been allowed to play that role. And, you know, Rose has been, you know, pretty good this year again. Maybe not quite as good as last year, but, the you know, the scoring, um, the, um, the on-off differential has been even larger because of the struggles of the starters. But... I, I understand Tibbs wanting to keep him coming off the bench, even if just as a way to limit his minutes. Like you saw what happened when he was starting in the Hawks series last year, where he was playing 30 plus minutes a game. He just like couldn't move by the end of those games. And even if just to keep him at, you know, 22 to 26 minutes or whatever, if that's what you need to do to, to keep him at those minutes is keep bringing him off the bench. I think that makes sense. And then he and quickly play really well together. He and uh, Burks, play really well together i would have liked to see quickly but what are you going to do like baby steps tibbs making uh you know an actual pretty big mid-season change 
uh, is not something that you normally see. Oh, no, no, not at all, no. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, they're playing the Nets tonight. Going to be interested to see what happens there. Um, I think we got to talk about MPJ, the back yeah. injury. He's going to have back surgery for, I think, the third time. He had two, I'm pretty sure, between college and is starting his career in the NBA. It seemed sort of like he was over the back issues, like he had played so well um, in the bubble. Like, what's interesting is he wasn't playing, like, outrageously well before the restart in the bubble, and then he just played unbelievably well for most of the bubble until that, you know, second-round series where he started getting, or, no, the Western Conference Finals where he started getting picked on defensively, and they had to, you know, bring him off the bench again. He was, wasn't happy about it. But then last year, after having a weird start to the year where he was not starting and then where he had COVID twice, um, once he started starting last year, he was just so good. And, you know, they, he gets the extension this offseason and he's playing kind of well, not as well, obviously, as last season to start the year. Like maybe the back was bothering him earlier in the year. And now it's just like we don't know when he's going to play again, if he's ever going to look like he did. You would imagine he'll have even more trouble moving around when he gets back on the court. Like it's just – it sucks, you know? Like, it does. And, but like, this was always kind of the thing with him, though, when, you know, even even in the draft, like, because before that season, people were talking about him and Luca as maybe the two guys for, you know, who's going to be the number one pick. And then he had, like, he fell to number 14 in the lottery because so many teams looked at his back and were just like, no, we absolutely are not going to take this risk. And Denver was kind of in a position where they could, and they had their core kind of in place and it wasn't, and so it wasn't going to like make or break them. I still feel like Denver, assuming Jamal Murray gets back, like now, you know, Jokic missed a few games. He's back now. He's still looking incredible. If Murray comes back around the all-star break, which I think is possible because everything we've heard about his rehab from the ACL has been very positive. And so we, you know, if he, he might theoretically be back at some point. I still think Denver could be pretty good. Like, I don't think they're on the level of Phoenix or Golden State, but I could see them being like a second round team still or, you know, surprising somebody and getting to the conference. Final. I, I don't know. I, I still think they'll be pretty good without MPJ for the whole year, but this really, you know, it, it, it changes their long-term ceiling, I think. Yeah, I mean, look, like, so, so first of all, Jamal tore his ACL in April. I feel like the All-Star game, is, the All-Star break, is a little bit of an aggressive timeline. Like, that's 10 months. Most guys don't come back within 10 months. Usually it's, like, 12, 13. Um, maybe apparently he beats, he's been just going crazy. Like, yeah, I mean, look, ahead of maybe, maybe he beats that. If he's back by March, like, even still, that would be – beating the projected timeline and still give him, you know, six weeks or so to get himself back into shape and back into rhythm before the playoffs. Like you would still expect him to not necessarily be the same guy with that little time. Maybe he comes back right. even earlier than that, but you know, who but knows? ACLs have also not been like back. Like I mentioned Derek Rose before as a guy who tore his ACL and was never the same guy that that was almost 10 years ago since then, you know, especially for guards who aren't, you know, big guys that put a lot of weight on their, on their knees. It's become so much less of a, this is going to completely alter your career. Like Zach Levine. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It doesn't necessarily completely alter your career at this point, but right. it does take a while to get back to what you were before. It's not like you come back and you're just the same guy right away. Like generally guys have, you know, some issues getting into the lane, finishing at the rim, things like that. You know, obviously Murray's game is more based on like his, his chemistry with Jokic and his ability to shoot jumpers off the dribble and off the catch and things like that. Um, you would imagine 
the defense might take a little bit of a hit when he comes back. Not that he was, you know, a great defender to begin with, but I mean, Jokic is good enough that they're going to be really good regardless. I do think that it'll be, you know, a bit of a struggle for this time until Jamal comes back just because like, what are they doing offensively in the, in the minutes that Jokic sits and like, do they have enough depth? Like they lost PJ Dozier too. Like they're the depth is an issue for them at this point. Like the, the greens have not been all that good to start the year. If one of the, if one or both of them can start playing well, that would really help them a lot. And you know, it's, it's a lot of pressure on Gordon and Barton and Monte Morris to do things that like, ideally those guys are, you know, your fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh men. And now they're forced to become, you know, the second, third and fourth guy. And it's just, it's a lot, you know, it's like the more guys you lose from your rotation, like I'm not thinking that they're necessarily still a title contender, but I think they're still going to be really good just because Jokic is that good. And we see that like, you know, the dude comes back last night and like, you know, what a difference it makes when you have that dude back on the court. They just kind of smoked the heat. Granted, the the heat didn't have uh, Jim Butler, but I mean, 24, 15 and seven in his first game back, he's pretty ridiculous at this point too. Yeah, Jokic has been. I mean, the the top two MVP candidates are are Steph and Durant, but Jokic is like right in there for number three. Oh, I think Jokic is pretty firmly in the mix with with KD behind Steph. To me, um, he hasn't played a few games, but I mean, someone was pointing this out on Twitter last night. Jokic is actually scoring more points and at better efficiency per one hundred possessions than Steph is. He plays fewer minutes, so he's not leading the league in scoring. Um, but the dude is just outrageous. He makes no sense on, on several levels. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I have one more thing that I wanted to talk to you about before we take some questions. Uh, we're going we're to talk more in depth about this on Thursday when I have Eric name on, but the Bucks have won seven games in a row. They're getting back to looking like the Bucks we expected. And Brooke Lopez isn't even back yet. They are super scary. I picked the Bucks to win the East before the season started. I was not at all concerned about their slow start with all the injuries that they had. I still feel like they're probably the best team in the East, especially like if, you know, considering, I mean, I, I, you know, Brooklyn, obviously because Durant is so good, but like we're assuming that Kyrie Irving doesn't come back at any point. I've just kind of written that off and I still, you know, their defense is still not great. I still have some questions about their depth. I still just kind of like Milwaukee more than any other team in the East. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to at this point. You know, Miami is in there. Brooklyn is in there. I don't know if I would have the Bulls in there, like, on record and point differential. They're right there so far this season. I got to see more, and I got to see how well the defense holds up over the rest of the year and whether you can sustain a really good defense, basically based on – guards terrorizing the shit out of opponents right um, we'll we'll see how well that holds up but i mean man like when you have yeah. drew chris and Giannis, and can rotate the three of them through the lineup and like they don't have dante divincenzo back yet either he's gonna come back and give him a lift just another guy that can let them get to you know those small ball looks they have grayson allen shooting the shit out of the ball so far bobby portis playing really well um in brooks at absence and they're defending well without like their you know their backline guy along with Giannis you know it's just it's just a really 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 good team and as baller science mentions in the chat don't sleep on Giannis to 
get MVP again. I wouldn't put it past He's him. off probation. Now that they won the title, he's not a guy that voters don't want to vote for. Any, as dumb as that is, that was kind of what was going on last year, at least in part. Yeah, I mean, like they're they're not back at the top of the conference yet. I think they're like a game or two back of Brooklyn. You would imagine they're going to get back in there. What's, what's super interesting about the East is from Miami to Boston, which is 3 to 11, they're separated by two games total. Like... You look at, like, so the Knicks are 11-9 and nine and everybody's sort of fretting over them. They're two games back of Chicago at the two seed. Like, the East is really, really good. Like, even, you know, Toronto and Indiana, they're six and a half games back of the Nets in first place. Like, it's a lot, but it's not a lot. You look at, so Indiana is in uh, 13th in the East. They're six and a half games back of Brooklyn. 13th in the West is Oklahoma City. They're 12 games back of the Warriors. Granted, the Warriors are 18 and two and, and Brooklyn is 14 and six, but the, the, the West I think is much more stratified of a conference than the East is. Like it looks like the West has three really good teams, a bunch of teams in the middle and then Houston and like new Orleans and, and, and that it looks like the, the East has Brooklyn, Miami, Washington, or not Milwaukee, maybe like Chicago, Charlotte, Washington, the Knicks, Philly, like all of these teams seem like they're just as good as one another. You know, some of them are are better in point differential than like Atlanta is sitting in 10th, but they've got like the fourth or fifth best point differential in the conference. Maybe they can get back up there. Who knows? But it's just a much, much deeper conference this year to me. Yeah, and it's really outside of, like, I mean, the two teams that are just outright bad and are tanking are Detroit and Orlando. And other than that, you know, even some of the teams that are quote-unquote, you know, lower in the standings, like, you know, Philly, I think, is artificially, you know, lower because, you know, they just had a whole bunch of games where they were missing Embiid and Tobias Harris, and they had, like, the whole COVID outbreak on the team. And so they, you know, they, they gave up some games from that. Cleveland, I think, you know, Evan Mobley was just out for a little bit, and they've been really good when he's played. So, like, even some of these other teams, I think, could still get back in the mix. It's like there's there's none of those teams, basically, out, again, outside of, like, the two teams in the conference that are actually, like, actively bad. I don't think any of these other teams you can just completely write off from at least being play-in teams, if not better. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I'm The one team I'm extremely confused by more than any other team is – the Pacers, they make very little sense to me. I want to try to get somebody on to talk more in depth about them at some point. Um, but they're they're nine and fourteen with a plus one point three per game point differential. Makes no <laughs> sense. Um, they have a lot of talent on the on the team. They have a yeah, they've had guys in and out of the lineup. Like yeah, um, obviously they still don't have TJ Warren back yet. Brogdon's missed a few games. Levert's missed a few games. Sabonis, I think, missed a game or two. Turner's missed a few games. Like, it's just a very weird team. I don't like. I don't know what to expect from them on any given night. Like, like I said, I want to talk a little bit more about them. Um, we got about fifteen minutes left here, so if anybody's got questions for either Sean or me, you got questions. Um, Bulls. Sean uh, covered the Bulls for a while. Lived in Chicago for a few years. You got questions about the Blazers. He is based in Portland now and uh, is at their games fairly often. Questions about Knicks, Nets, anything else, put them in the chat or request to speak, and we'll try to get to a few of them. Uh, beyond that, um, okay, Justin asks, is Minnesota's recent hot streak sustainable? Are they a playoff team? 
I freaking love watching the Wolves, man. Um, yeah. I, I think they're cert- like if they're not at least the plan team, I'll be pretty disappointed in what's happened to them. They had some bad luck last night. Carl Towns' fouls in that game last night against the Pacers were pretty outrageous. But I love the way they're playing defense, not necessarily the results, which have been better than expected so far, but they're playing a style of defense super aggressive and you know blitz not necessarily blitzing but just playing out high on the floor all over the place making opponents start their offense later in the shot clock and higher on the floor than they would like to and just due to the athleticism that they have on their team and the youth that they have on their team i think it just makes a ton of sense for their roster and it's just it's just got to be super annoying to play against them yeah, I'm really excited to see them here in Portland in a couple of weeks, to see them in person. But, uh, I mean, even like D'Angelo Russell, who I've never been super high on basically since he came into the league, he's been playing well lately. Uh, Anthony Edwards has just been awesome for the most part. Like, I, I like, I think, I think a play, I think just, just with how many teams there are in the West that I think have more of a track record, I'm hesitant to say, oh, yeah, the Wolves are a playoff team, but I definitely think they're good enough to be in the play in at the least. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't see any of like the the Rockets, Pel- the Rockets, Rockets, Pelicans, or Thunder passing them. And after that, you just got to be better than two teams out of San Antonio, Sacramento, Portland, Memphis, the Lakers, the Clippers. Like, you just got to be better and than two other teams. Memphis, like Memphis, like is going to not have Jaw for a while, so they're probably going to fall. Sacramento, I you know don't trust at all they're just they're a huge mess in terms of stuff but like i think it's very doable all right we got a a question here from baller science baller science what's up hey guys what's up how's it going thanks for bringing me on yeah no doubt i just see you guys talking about and um i think it's too early i don't really like to do early kind of predictions but like one quarter of the way through we're we're done already so usually within 20 to 25 games played i'll do my predictions which will come soon but just based my comment that I made about Denver earlier, when I look at the Western Conference, and of course the Eastern Conference is like like it's never been before when you look at like a three or four game rise or slide can move you several positions, as we noticed already this year. But when I look at the Western Conference, the reason I said that about the Nuggets is, and also the Lakers, I think depending on what the Grizzlies and also Portland does, and even Minnesota, that's going to determine if the Lakers and Denver would fall into the playoffs. Um, I had a conversation like earlier in the summer and we all kind of talked about which two teams would fall out of East conference and which two teams would move into the top eight. And Portland was that potential team that would fall out. Um, Although I think they're really kind of starting to play a different style with Chauncey Billups. Um, And the Grizzlies of course, is that other team that I think is going to be in that top eight. So, of course, Minnesota's always that team that they have the talent, but you just haven't been able to figure out what's, you know, like I think somebody mentioned, um, you just never know what to expect from them. Mm-hmm. But I think they're finally kind of getting there, like where they're finally meeting, you know, our expectations of being really good. So that leaves the Lakers, who seem to be still struggling, and then Denver, who, you know, they just don't have enough, I think, to kind of beat these really solid teams. Which yeah, I don't want to... I don't want to spoil a, a story I have coming um, that gets into some of the stuff with the Lakers, but I, I wrote the, uh, the uh, th- thanks for the, uh, the the question and the detail in there, Baller Science. Um, 
I wrote the season intro for the 538 predictions model before the season, and it had the Lakers finishing with the ninth best record in the conference, obviously in the play-in again, and with only like a 48% chance to make the playoffs. And obviously people flipped out, and you know LeBron has been out for 11 games so far, 10 due to injury and one due to suspension. Um, but it's it's sort of been on, and that's, that's something that factors in. You know, LeBron has missed games and now three of the last four seasons he's missed an extended stretch russ hasn't been like russ hasn't been as good as they'd hoped uh Andy davis not shooting jumpers well but otherwise playing at a really high level carmelo making a ton of shots obviously not as much as he did earlier in the season but you know maybe at a higher rate than you might have expected but some of the the other guys that they brought in uh have not worked out too well for them and it's hard to see that changing their fortunes too much and then uh, i'll let sean go into the the blazers aspect of it yeah the blazers just i mean it, it's it's the, the differential on at home versus on the road right now is actually kind of hilarious they're nine and one at home and one and ten on the road so that's that's just, and i had nobody figure out why they play so much better at home than on the road and like they've beaten some good teams at home too they beat phoenix they beat uh the clippers they beat memphis early on when memphis was hot like they've beaten some good teams but I think they're just the. They just are what they are. I think they are, like Dame, you know, Dame had that obviously like that terrible start to the season, but he seems like he's kind of back to being Dame for to a degree. Uh, CJ's been up and down. Nurkic has been up and down. The Larry Nance at center thing has worked pretty well when they've gone to it. But I think this roster just kind of has a ceiling. I think they're probably going to be like a six or seven seed again, and I don't think that's going to change unless the you know the fundamentally the way the roster looks uh is different and i don't think that's going to be the case as long as things are the way they are as far as some of the organizational stuff going on yeah that's something i mentioned when uh we did our blazers and bulls focused uh chat earlier in the season when you were on sean like it's been a very similarly structured team for a while now and they've sort of made moves around the margins to try to shuffle things around and get, you know, a little bit better than they have been. And they did the same thing this year. And maybe it winds up that they're, you know, the same, same ish quality team are a little bit better than they have been. It's, it's really difficult to see them making a, a, you know, a big leap from where they have been. It's just, it's basically the same kind of team. It's, it's Dame and CJ and Nurk and then a whole bunch of different sized wings with different skills. And it's just like, we've seen that over the years and we've seen what, the I think we've seen what both the floor and the ceiling are, and it's not good enough to get where they want to go. So for me, until they make some sort of structural changes beyond shuffling guys in, like how much different is this team than the team with Harkless and Aminu and you know Alan Crabb or whoever else was there, Wes Matthews back in the day? Like how much different is this than those teams? It's just it's not. It's like the same kind of thing. So for me, like. I think of the Blazers very much like I've thought of them over the last few years. The only interesting thing I can see about them is they're nine and one at home and one and ten on the road. Uh, yeah, yeah I mean, definitely most, agree. Most teams, you know, most most teams do play better at home than on the road, but you don't see it being that drastic of a difference very often. I and I'm hesitant to say much about this because it's you know still ongoing. But if the 
investigation into Neil Olshay goes a certain way that I once thought it was going to go and now don't think it was going to go, then that might be something that would change the calculus a little bit. But it seems as though the status quo is probably going to stay the same for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, Baller Science, how do you feel about the, uh, the responses there? Oh, I definitely agree. And I've been saying that, like, with you guys saying that that ceiling with those two guys, with their team in place, they've already reached their ceiling. And I get, do you guys remember when I think they kind of, they rewarded, I think it was Mo Harkless and Aminu, I believe, Aminu, and they extended their contract, which basically kind of locked them in. And they've been the kind of the same team since then. What I think they have to do, if Dame is willing to say, hey, I'm willing to stay in Portland, the only Which he other has asset, He's been pretty definitive about right. that. So having stated that, the only other asset that you can really kind of shake up the roster, you have to you have to shop around um I'm sorry, what's his his the Robin? I'm sorry. CJ. Yeah. CJ. He's the only yeah. piece that you can really get something valuable for and keep uh Dame Lillard. Not gonna yeah. happen. Yeah. I I don't think they don't happen while Neil Olshay. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen while Neil is there. Like Sean has said, like Neil's not going to trade CJ. That's just not. Yeah, that's his. Um, That's his. That's that's his. That's his. The point you're making is like exactly why everyone and their mother has been talking about a uh, a CJ for Simmons swap for not even just since Simmons requested a trade, but even before that. The one thing I think that is definitely going to change is I I can't see Nurkic being back there next year after his contract expires. I would agree with that. I don't think I don't think he's going to be back either. Yeah, and I, I do you have to be open to packaging. I think you have to be open to packaging Nurkic and CJ. Like you have to go all in. If he's commit made that commitment, you have to roll the dice. And I would agree with that. To do yeah, that or not, I I agree too. Um, I'm going to move you back to the audience here because we're going to wrap up soon. Uh, Baller science, but thank thanks for uh, for chiming in here. The the one thing I would say with trying to trade CJ and Nurkic together is it's a lot of salary and you gotta they're over the cap by a considerable amount so you got to do matching salary it's tough to see who's gonna want cj and nurkic that's also gonna trade you a good player um i think you have to you yeah you got to move them separately i don't think any i don't know how many teams there are that are that are going to be taking both of them as a package deal i don't i don't see that but but this is this is why I said that if there were to be a resolution to this investigation that resulted in somebody else being the one to make these trades, then there might be a better chance of that happening. But I don't believe that that's going to be the case. Yeah, certainly uh, with CJ, that would like right. it would go from no chance to non-zero chance. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Nurkic, I think, is still a possibility. Like if they get to the deadline and they're still sort of you know, floundering around 500. Nurkic, I could definitely see being moved this year for like, maybe they go for more of a defensive minded center like they have when they had Robin Lopez a few years back. And that was sort of, I think the best version of the team. I don't know that you're not going to like trade Nurkic straight up for Robin Lopez, but someone who brings a little bit more defense as opposed to what Nurkic brings offensively. And, you know, I know he, he works well for them when guys blitz Dame and he can sort of make plays, on the role in a, you know, a better way than, than other guys that they've had could. But I think going back to that sort of defensive focused center might be an interesting change of pace for them just to see if they can get more out of this core that they have right now. Yeah. I mean, we'll see how, or if any of this 
gets resolved between now and the deadline. I mean, there's just, there's a whole lot up in the air with the organization right now. And I don't know when any of that is going to get resolved. So I just, it's hard to project too far into the future. I just, it's just, I think I feel pretty solidly that if Neil Olshay is still the one making the calls, then CJ is not going to be traded. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about that for a while. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, my dog wants to go out. So we're going to wrap this up eh, two minutes or so early, okay. but, um, Sean, thanks again for doing this, man. You can find him on Twitter at Hyken, H-I-G-H-K-I-N. You can find his work at Bleacher Report. He's got the, uh, what is it, Bulls versus Blazers podcast? Yeah. Right? Yep. yeah. And uh, we'll be back on Thursday, same time, 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern, with uh, with Eric Name from The Athletic. We're going to talk about the Bucks, about his story on Giannis that he wrote this week about Brooke Lopez, if and when he might be coming back, the DeMarcus Cousins signing, all sorts of other stuff. So uh, thanks for joining, and uh, we'll see you again on Thursday.